the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. I'll do this. Uh, the Didache is actually called the teachings of the Lord through the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. Uh, it was discovered by Archbishop Byrenius in 1875 and was published in 1830, 1883. Now, here's a little bit of history about this book. It, it, is, uh, it has been known for a very, very long time. Eusebius is an early church historian that was around the time of Constantine. He is like Constantine's, um, I don't know, what would you call his press agent? Eusebius loves Constantine and decided to write a book about early church history called the writings of Eusebius. And in that book and other places too, um, We've known about the teaching of the Lord through the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. It was a book that was known to the early church, very, very much so. But it kind of fell out of disuse, um, and there were no known copies of it that were existing. And so while we knew this book existed, nobody knew what the book said, although different parts were referenced in different writings. Um and then it was discovered by Archbishop Bryanius in 1875. Uh, and then it was published in 1883. Well, after it was published, as the text that we're going to look at today, um, it, people then began to realize that they had copies of it too. Because sometimes you'll have a copy of something, but you're not sure what it is, right? You have an old Greek papyrus or some writing uh, and so other people raise their hands and say, hey, we've had this for a long time. We didn't know it was the teaching because we didn't have the title on it. We just had parts of it. And so they began to piece together all the different parts of this. And over the next hundred years, uh, from 1875 on, um, they realized that this book is actually everywhere. I mean, the little bits and pieces of it existed everywhere. Uh, and it's very... Uh, I would call it ubiquitous. I mean, just a lot of people found that they had pieces of it. And the earliest date that they've placed on this writing uh, is amazingly early. So I've heard that in the first century, so uh, 50 to 80 AD is kind of what, what I had known for a long time, but I just looked at Wikipedia and a couple other sources, and some people actually placed the writing of this thing um, now about 50 AD. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, it's 50 to 80 AD, uh, is about where people are, are, are placing the, the writing of this text. Now, just to understand Jesus, uh, what is 30 AD? So we are, we are so close to Jesus, you know, you can touch him. Uh, most people would say that the, a lot of the writings that come in the Didache, so there's some gospel texts that come in the Didache that sound very much like the book of Matthew. So a lot of people believe that Matthew and the writer of the Didache were very, very close. Um, the book of Matthew, uh, prior to being written down, was what Matthew would talk. And so you'd say, this is what Matthew would say. And so there's writing. So uh, at that point, the gospel of Matthew was an oral tradition. Uh, the, the, the gospel writings were an oral tradition. Matthew was an oral tradition because he's a person. So the Didache, the, the writer of the Didache probably knew Matthew and, and 
took the accounts of Jesus from Matthew, even before Matthew wrote or right shortly after Matthew wrote. So it's an early book. Now, how come we don't look at it as in the New Testament? And that's a good question because there are churches actually that do include the, um, the writings of the Didache, this writing as part of the, what we call the canon. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church includes a version of this as part of the canon, but Eusebius, uh, who I mentioned before was contemporary with Constantine, did not see it as part of the canon, so he excluded it as the canon. And uh, you got to scratch your head and say, why? Because as I've looked at the Didache, it's not all that, well, it's certainly in line with scripture. There's no question about it. But, but Eusebius did not consider as part of the canon. Why not? Well, Eusebius was uh, living in Greece at the time. He was, he was a follower of Constantine. Uh, he was more of a Roman Western Europe type of Christian and the Didache, as you'll see, is very much an early church Jewish type of writing. Um, and so by the time of Constantine, he probably said, well, we're not going to follow that because we follow Rome. And Rome has a better handle on, on you know, early Christianity than early Christianity itself. But I just find it fascinating. Now, am I going to present this as, as, a, as gospel truth? No, not at all. It is not part of the canon that we follow we follow the 66 books of the Bible, and for the New Testament, that's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, a bunch of letters by Paul, a bunch of letters, uh, well, a few letters by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, writings by Paul, uh, Peter, John, James, uh, and then um, then Revelation. I mean, we don't we don't Jude, we don't include this in the in our quote unquote canon, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't study it and look at it. And so what I'm going to do in these four days, if we can get through it in four days, uh, is to look at the Didache and say, does this make sense? Is it, does it agree with Scripture or does it not agree with Scripture? Does it agree with uh, what we believe as, uh, as Lutheran Christians? Uh, does it follow the, the Lutheran um, writings? Uh, is it in agreement with the Lutheran writings? Is it not agreement with the Lutheran writings? And where does it agree? Where does it not agree? And um, this should be fun. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I really am curious. Every time I go through a book of the Bible and teach it to you, God uh, pours into me also. And, uh, and so I, I get very fulfilled. I've, I've, I've always been a big fan of the Didache, even though I don't consider it part of the canon. Um, so there is quite possible that there's something in there that's that I don't agree with or is not part of the of the Christian writings part of the scripture but we'll get through that and we'll see is it how close is it and is it something that uh, that we can say yeah this is really really interesting or something no we want to throw that away we're gonna get through that in this book because um, I I'm just a, I'm fascinated by the Didache uh, now, Didache is a Greek word that means teaching. Uh, if you have ever heard of the word didactic, which is an English word which means to teach or very uh, deals with teaching, you, you realize that Didache is the root word. The root word for Didache is teaching. It's a Greek word for teaching, um, and it is the teaching. Apparently, you know what the, what they said 
It's the teaching of the Lord through the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. The teaching of the Lord through the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. And that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to uh, look at. And just as another aside, um, this would be something that you would teach a Gentile before they were going to get baptized. This, these are like, this is what we're going to teach you about Jesus. Now, we, in the Lutheran tradition, treat, teach a lot of different things uh, if a person wants to learn something before they get baptized. We'll teach the Lutheran confessions. We'll teach the small catechism. Um, we can teach the large catechism. And there's always a question about how much knowledge do you give a person before they get baptized. Uh, in the early church, the, you know, they baptized very, very quickly without much knowledge at all. But then as the church has become institutionalized, um, they like to have some teaching before somebody gets baptized. Uh, and so this is one of the teachings that they would teach before a person got baptized. So it is good stuff. There's no question about it. And I like it because it really digs deep into the early history of the church. I sometimes wonder if the church today in America has, while we have scripture, while we have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we cling to them very, very closely and tightly, which we should, um, if we've lost a little bit of the flavor of what the early church looked like and what they, how they lived and what they saw as important, because all this stuff is in Scripture. Everything in the Didache is in Scripture. But it's what the early church saw as the important parts of Scripture that they looked at, whereas we today might look at other important parts of Scripture. So it is all Scripture, but it's, it's just packaged differently. Let me put it that way. So uh, that's why I like the Didache, and that's why I want to spend some time on it this week. And maybe next week, who knows? We'll see. We'll see how, because it is already 17 after, and I have not even started looking at it, but we're going to look at it right now. So this is, the, this is the Didache, and it goes like this. This is chapter one. There are two paths, one of life and one of death, and the difference is great between the two paths. Now the path of life is this. First, thou shalt love the God who made thee, thy neighbor as thyself, and all things that thou wouldst not should be done unto thee, thou not do not thou unto another. All right, so the first thing that you recognize is this is an old translation of the Didache. I probably could come up with a newer translation of the Didache. Maybe I'll look into that, but it's but this is definitely an older English type of thing. It's, a, you know, it's, it's written in King James English, if you will, even though this translation is, is very, very recent. Um, but it talks about two, path, two paths, a path, of, a path of life and a path of death, or a way of life or a way of death. And I find that interesting because if you look at the early Christian church, um, before they became known as Christians, they were called the way. And there's even, uh, there's even um, uh, a Bible called The Way. Uh, the, the early Christian church was known as a way of life, a way of living. And I think we've sometimes lost that. Um, we, we as American Christians think that following Jesus is a, is a knowing um, which it is. There's certainly a lot of good stuff in Old Testament, New Testament scripture, and, and there's a lot of stuff to know. But um, in the early church, it was a way of it was a way of living. It was a way of life. It was, 
It was God pouring into you daily his sustenance and his grace and his love and his mercy that you woke up every day and you felt the presence of God and that that was the way. And that if you did that, that it was life. And it wasn't life just for today or for your life here on earth, but it was life eternal. It was life. It was God giving life, giving to you this way of life. And what is that way of life? Well, the first is that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. And that you wouldn't do to somebody. Now, this is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. That's the golden rule. Uh, And it comes right here from the Didache. Um, Treat others as you want to be treated and don't treat others the way that you wouldn't want to be treated. All right? And let's go on. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 3. And the, and the doctrine of these maxims is as follows. Bless those that curse you and pray for your enemies. Fast on behalf of those that persecute you. For what thank is there if you love them that love you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. But do you love them that hate you? And you will not have an enemy. So this is right out of the Gospels, right? Jesus would say, bless those who curse you. Pray for your enemies. I don't think Jesus said fast on behalf of those that persecute you, but Jesus did say fast. And fasting was part of the early church. So you certainly could, if you were in a moment of trying to pray for your enemy, and you pray and you pray and you pray, and you feel like you need even more assistance from God, you could take a moment of fasting. Now, why? Because fasting is was very, very much part of Old Testament and New Testament church. Uh, Jesus fasted. He fasted for 40 days. The early church fasted. Fasting is part of the early church. And it's not just denying yourself of food. It is when you're fasting, uh, instead of eating, you're spending that time with God in the presence of God, asking him to fill you because you're not filling your body with, with food then to sustain yourself, the early church believed that you'd fill your body with God and that God would sustain you. And and of course, today we know medically that fasting, when you fast, your body changes from uh, a carbohydrate type living to a a ketosis type living, where where you're living off of your fats of your body. So when you eat carbohydrates, if you need those carbohydrates, they're used, great. But if you've got extra carbohydrates, then it, it, cha- it joins together with insulin and it's stored as fat in your body. So all the fat in your body at one point were carbohydrates. They were just changed to fat. So when you stop eating carbohydrates or stop eating altogether, then your body says, hmm, I'm not getting any carbohydrates anymore. I'm going to start living off of my fats. And so your body switches from kind of a carbohydrate living to what they call a ketogenic living. And ketogenic living is basically this. You're just living off your fats. And you can live off of your fats. Not a problem. Actually, body actually works really, really well living off your fats. I do this all the time. And when I go into a ketogenic state, uh, I find that my mind is clearer. Um, I, I, f- I feel healthier. I feel bright. I feel alert. There's just something about that ketogenic state. Now, if you've never done it before, The first one or two times getting into that ketogenic state can be very, very difficult because your body, you know, if your body has lived in a non-ketogenic state for a number of years, once you move to a ketogenic state, your body is like, oh, 
this is bad, this is awful, this is horrible. But once you kind of learn how to live in a ketogenic state, your body's like, oh, I like this. This is really kind of cool. And so I, I do this periodically and I actually enjoy fasting. Um, do I get hungry fasting? Yes, of course, that's part of fasting. Can you live in fasting? You, you, you know, you could actually, if you, um, there have been studies of people who fasted for a year where they maybe took some supplemental nutrition uh, you know, they, um, you know, because when you're fasting, you're not getting vitamins, you're not getting minerals, you know, some of that stuff, salts, you're not getting that. And so you have to supplement your body with those things because you're not getting it in your, in the fat stored fat cells. All some of it, it, it does come in your stored fat cells and that can be a challenge too. So you have to supplement it, but there are people go, you know, you can go days, you can go a year if you've got enough, um, on your body to do that, uh, fat on your body to do that. You could go a year and, and your body would be just fine. Um, but, but that's a, that's a very difficult way to, to do that. And, and I, I don't see fatting, I don't see, uh, fasting, um, as much as losing weight as I see fasting as time I can spend with God. So, uh, I have done that. So the early church did that. Jesus never said that you should fast for your enemies. He did say, pray for your enemies. Uh, and he did say that, uh, what good is it to you if you, if you love, you know, your neighbor, you should really love your enemy. Everybody loves their neighbor. Everybody loves their family. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. That is all out of scripture. Um, the fasting for those who persecute you, that's not necessarily from scripture, but it's not bad. Um, it's a good way actually to focus, to spend that time you would be eating, to focus on prayer and your neighbor. Um, and then this last one, but uh, love those who hate you and you will not have an enemy. And that is not in scripture. Okay, I would just tell you that right now. Um, it, you can still love those that hate you and they'll still be your enemy. Um, now, they may not be an enemy because of you and you may have taken away all sorts of barriers. What Jesus says is that if you pray for those who persecute you, it puts burning coals on their head uh, and it's on them, it's not on you. Um, so that necessarily isn't part of what Jesus taught. But is it bad? Love those that hate you and you will not have an enemy. I, I don't know. I, I love those who hate you, absolutely. Will you not have an enemy? I don't, I don't think that's true. Although, I do believe that if you live the way of life, if you're gentle, compassionate, uh, and... and um, and live as maybe the early apostles did, going around spreading the gospel of Jesus and spreading the love of Jesus and praying for those who persecuted. You know, Paul was in prison, living in prison. And what did he do? He prayed for the jailer. Uh, he prayed for those who had imprisoned him. Um, I mean, these are powerful things that the early church did, but it wasn't necessarily commanded by Jesus that's recorded in scripture. So it's not a bad thing. But will you have an enemy? That, that part just really isn't in scripture that I see it. Okay, we'll go on. Verse four, abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If anyone gives you a blow on your right cheek, then turn to the other cheek. Uh, if you want to be perfect, if anyone compels you to go a mile, go with him too. If a man takes away your cloak, give him your coat also. If a man takes uh, what is yours, don't ask for it again for neither art thou able to do so. So 
uh, and Jesus did talk about this. He said, if someone takes your coat, you know, or someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone, t- you know, takes your coat, uh, give them your tunic, give them your belt also. I'm, I'm trying to remember that scripture verse. But Jesus did speak in words like this. But the early church then takes this and adds, you know, if he asks you to go one mile, go two. Uh, if he takes your cloak, give him your coat. Uh, if he takes what is yours, don't ask for it back. I mean, this is this is tough stuff. Um, it is because we cling to the stuff that we own. We want to keep the stuff that we own. And you can't live in a society um, where everybody takes stuff from you. I mean, it, it's great on paper, uh, and it's certainly a way of life that Jesus talked about. But as you mature as a society matures as a, as a nation becomes christianized you can't just get i mean and we'll find out why when we get later but you can't just say okay i had to take everything i own um, that'd be great no you can't do that because then pretty soon you'd be penniless because there are evil people out there there truly are evil people out there that would see a christian and say oh that's a christian they're required by their way of life to just, you know, give me whatever I want. So they go up to a Christian and say, I want your coat. I want your shoes. Uh, I'm going to hit you on the cheek and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, so there are people that if you truly do live this way and there are evil people know that you're living this way, they will take advantage of you. And so that is a very difficult um, way to live and broadcast to the world because of the evil people of the world. And the Didache speaks about this a little bit. And so we'll, um, let's just take a look and see. Uh, this is verse five. Give to everyone that asks of you and do not ask again. For the father wishes that from his own gifts there should be given to all. Blessed is he who giveth according to the commandment. For he is free from guilt. But woe unto him that receiveth. For if a man receive, being in need, he shall be free from guilt. But he who receiveth when not in need shall pay a penalty as to why he received and for what purpose. And when he is in tribulation, he shall be examined concerning the things that he has done and shall not depart thence until he has paid the last farthing. For of a truth that has been said unto these matters, let thy almsgiving abide in thy hands until thou knowest to whom thou hast given. Okay, so this is what... The early church was teaching about giving. Because Jesus did say, you know, if, if someone strikes you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. Uh, if someone takes your cloak, give your tunic also. I mean, Jesus did talk in these terms. The problem is only Jesus is perfectly able to live in these ways. Because when you live in this way, you do risk being stripped of everything you own and perhaps even be persecuted to the point of death on the cross. Now, Jesus did that, and the early apostles did that. But how do you create a society that moves forward the gospel of Jesus Christ if the evil people in the world start stripping you of everything that you own and putting you to death? It, does the, the, it doesn't live on very long. And so the early church... And this may be why Eusebius, you know, didn't include it in the canon because it, 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 is, it is an early church adaptation of the, of the teachings of Jesus, which is basically this. Uh, the way I read this is, yes, give to other people. 
And if a person truly is in need, absolutely give to them. No questions asked. If they're in need, you should give. But what about a person who's not in need, who wants to game the system uh, because they don't have need? And what the Didache says is that basically uh, hold on to your alms in your palm. Make sure that the person truly has a need before you give them you know, out of, out of your, your possessions. If they truly have a need, absolutely do. But if you can sense that they're a bad actor, that they're gaming the system, that they truly do not have a need, then don't give it to them. And if you've given to somebody because they said, I have a need, and it turns out they don't have a need, what happens then? Well, then when he's in tribulation, he'll be examined concerning what he has done. In other words, it'll come back to bite him. God will deal with that person the way that God's going to deal with that person. Um, we see even in the book of Acts how, how somebody held some stuff back, um, basically trying to game the system, and God put him to death. I mean, that's in the book of Acts. So God has his ways of dealing with this. Should we give to people in need? Absolutely. No question about it. That's the whole calling of Jesus is to, to be the hands and feet and the, and the resources in the world that so desperately needs it. But if a person who can work or if a person who isn't in need games the system, they're harshly treated. And the early church harshly treated it. So that's not part of the way of life. The part of the way of life is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Love God, love your neighbor, give to those who are in need, but make sure they're in need. Because if they're not in need and they're gaming the system, that is bad. That is uh, evil. And um, the early church even recognized that from the book of Didache, this Didache, the teaching. That's not, I mean, the part of the way of life is, yes, be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around you, but be cautious of evil players out there who are going to try to use your Christianity when they're not really in need to game the system so that they can get wealthier and you'll get poorer. That's not what, that's not what God called us to do. Jesus didn't call us... Uh, in the book of James, it says true Christianity is this, to look after widows and orphans. And that's how James did it. So a widow and an orphan absolutely is someone in need, right? But someone who is perf you know, somebody who is injured, who has an injury and they can't work, they're definitely in need. You know, the, the paralytic, the paralyzed, the lame, the blind, and all that sort of thing. But if you are a perfectly fine individual um, with no demons or anything like that, you should, um, you should not be receiving these things from the early church. Uh, if you've got a demon, let the early church pray for you. Uh, I mean, there was, there was ways of dealing with this, and it's part of living in our sinful condition in the fallen world that we have to, we have to balance our desire to follow Jesus and to give to a world to be his hands and feet versus the bad players that want to use that and game the system so that they can get wealthier just because they can. All right. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, the other chapters aren't as long. Uh, this is one of the longer chapters and there's only, I think, 14. There's not very many of them. So we should be able to do two or three a day. So we should be able to get through this by the end of the week, but maybe not. We'll have to see. But uh, I hope you're enjoying this. And I uh, hope you'll come back and join me tomorrow because this is, there was some really, really good stuff in here. And uh, I want to compare and com contrast that with what we know in scripture and we'll move forward.
All right, so let's pray for today. Uh, God, thank you for the blessings of this day. Uh, help us to be your hands and feet, but to be cautious and wary of um, being your hands and feet. Uh, thank you for everyone listening. Watch over them and keep them safe. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.